0: Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy. I am the author of the Pop Sequentialism book on comics and sequential art. We are recording here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, where there's always something going on. So if you hear any noise in the background, it is quite possibly the best party that you are missing right now. So I encourage you to come on down. Now, last week we spoke um, extensively on observing gay superheroes and as part of a a little mini-series here on the show on diversity in comics, we're going to continue that conversation a bit on gender issues, on the roles of women and how they are presented in the comic medium, and specifically superhero comics, but we're going to talk a little bit around that, and we'll probably bring in some of the issues that we raised last week, And uh, but it'll all be fresh. We're also going to be checking on um, on site to see what your comments have been on the shows, and uh, maybe bring up a little bit of those comments as as we progress into the uh, the next half hour, 40 minutes of this podcast. Um, I'm going to warn you that we're going to be covering some topics that are very hot-button topics. Um, It's very possible that um, some of you will be upset. And I want all of you to know that very important to me and to what I think this podcast is is tackling issues that I don't think are addressed as often um, in the comics medium and even by comics professionals. When we do have guests on the show, I, I try to ask the types of questions that reflect their particular expertise. Um, that talk about the issues that you don't hear about. We talk about pay. We talk about um, attempts at unionizing. We talk about um, the roles of men and women as creators. We talk about creator rights. We talk about how creating for a corporation is very different than creating for yourself. And with that note, I want to talk about the role of women as both characters in comics, as a sales item, as exploitation, and as creators. And so I think the best place to start is to address the wide chasm between the reality of the women that we see in our day-to-day lives and the presentation of female characters by male writers. Last week we talked about how there weren't a lot of writers out there who were adept at capturing strong female characters. And yet when you look at fan-favorite writers and fan-favorite books and you look at Buffy the Vampire Slayer you know obviously a television series uh, from a very gifted writer which addressed female characters and um, gay lesbian characters incredibly heartfelt respectfully heroically and you have a, a series that gets canceled after uh 5 seasons um even though it was a a kind of a cult hit favorite we have to understand that that show didn't get canceled because Everybody who thought it was a good show was watching it. They weren't. They weren't supporting it. They weren't writing letters of support when the network was threatening to cancel it. And, um, you know, one of the the best things that has come out of that series is the near-meteoric rise of its creator. And when you hand the reins of a huge franchise like the Avengers to someone who's most successful prior project was a marginally outside the top 10 Nielsen rated series that had been canceled a decade previously. That speaks to the voice of fandom. And Joss Whedon entered comic books to be able to further the stories that he could no longer tell on television. This helped spearhead a huge influx of television writers coming into the comic book medium. Him being very successful with a very large female fan base was able to bring that fan base over into superhero comics with his astonishing X-Men comic, which is an excellent comic. It, of course, came out a little slowly. There were some delays. Uh, like many of the best series, I think actually maybe all of the best series, there were frequent publishing delays, um, which maybe stretched the patience of the average comic book reader, probably drove the publishers crazy, but we're worth it. You know, at the end of the day, you've got another amazing addition to a very storied Marvel universe and a such a great franchise in the X-Men that I think everybody is hoping that at some point that story will be told in a film and hopefully by Joss Whedon. Only time will tell. But outside of Joss and the brothers Hernandez, and the brothers Luna. Are there many other male writers who write great female characters? That silence is uh, pretty loud in its own way, because I can't think of a whole lot of them off the top of my head. Even though, as we look on the newsstand, there's more presence for female characters, what are we looking at? Recently there was a huge controversy over a cover with the joker deemed uh, incredibly violent um too violent for the largely female readership demographic and there are people on both sides of this and i, I am no fan of censorship at all but censorship is a very specific concern censorship says that consenting adults cannot read something that they want to read, and I think in the case of this Joker cover, and it was part of a a whole move in which all the comics that month had the Joker on them, uh, this violent cover was placed on a book which has a much younger readership, and so I can understand that the decision to pull that cover um, was followed through, you know, that they received a bit of criticism for wanting to put that out there because it didn't match the demographic. When you look at films that are successful and you look at films that were great films that didn't succeed, you understand that it's marketing. That you can't put a razor blade in cotton candy and give it to a baby. You know that there are things that are appropriate for specific audiences. It's why we have a motion picture rating system. Um, whether or not you agree with how they rate things, that's a whole different story, and, and uh, I tend to think that the, that they don't do as good a job as they could. Um, but the idea being that it's better for the industry to monitor itself than for it to be a government-monitored um, industry. Pros and cons on both sides of that. I'm not going to get too into it. But I think it speaks to the idea that you know, Batgirl, um, a comic that does appeal very much to a large female readership, does so because it has become a very female-friendly comic. And I think when people attempt to cross-pollinate, so to speak, and bring a different demographic into a book, they have to understand what each demographic wants when you're trying to cross them. If they don't want the same thing. It's a bad cross-pollination. It's a bad cross-promotion. You want to offer something that would appeal to two audiences, to each other. That makes sense. You know, Teen Titans animated series, huge female viewership in the demographic they were going after. It matched that need for juvenile male audience who enjoyed superheroes with a female audience that enjoyed manga. um, Theme song by a a J-pop duo. Perfect package, animation match, the look match. It's, it was like Powerpuff Girls meets, you know, well, the Teen Titans. And the stories were written with that demographic in mind and, and very well so. And I think Marv Wolfman even wrote certain episodes of the show. Marv being the, the engineer of the, the relaunch of the Teen Titans and actually a guy who wrote female characters pretty well in his day. And I could say that Chris Claremont did a pretty good job of writing the monthly soap opera that was The Uncanny X-Men and that there was enough for both demographics. And that was in a time when female readership was probably under 9% overall. So how is it that things got worse when the female readership got more? And I think it has to do with a misunderstanding of the audience. That in the attempt to bring in more readers, trying to please too many people, it becomes a game of just throwing a lot of stuff at the wall to see what's going to stick. That is the worst possible marketing strategy imaginable and one of the most common. I saw it in the entertainment business when I worked in movie marketing, and I see it in every other business, whether it's art galleries, comic shops, corner stores. And yet the idea that a sudden and possibly undeserved uh, victory over a, a highly sought audience uh, inspires people to, to do this type of thing. Instead of thinking about it as a long, a long haul, a long relationship between producer and audience. What is the demographic? What speaks to that demographic? Who speaks to that demographic? You have to package that stuff. And there are probably more female writers and artists working in the superhero medium currently than ever have been before. But if you don't think they get editorial direction and how things are going to be, you're naive. They do. They get notes. There's uh, more attention from the editorial standpoint now, I think, than ever because of the multi-title, massive super company crossover um, events that have become so common, that are really kind of the life's blood of of Marvel and DC. Um, You see it when the Avengers got popular. You know, the the number of X-Men books went down, the number of Avenger books went up. You know, um, when Marvel Studios was mad at Sony, they canceled the Fantastic Four. Why produce a product when you don't like your business partner? Um, Again, a theme for a whole other show, and even the Fantastic Four movie could be a theme for a whole other show, and how not to do things multiple times, but when you've got creators like Marjorie Liu, and you've got creators like um, Amanda Connor, you're looking at incredibly talented women who do an incredibly good job and are given specific titles to work on because I think that the idea is that their presence will draw a female demographic to the material, and maybe that's true, maybe that is true. Um, I think that at least in the case of Amanda Connor, that she's getting a pretty a pretty broad uh, audience, and she's an exceptionally talented penciler. Um, her husband's a very talented writer, Jimmy Palmiotti, and you know it, it's it's great that you've got two creators um, working together and, and producing great work. But the demographic for Jimmy's readership and the demographic for Amanda's um, pencils and the characters that each are put on don't always jibe, and when they do, they jibe really well. And when they don't, then it's just probably the best-drawn comic on the newsstand that month. And if that's the, the biggest sin being committed, then then that's that's a good thing, and we're all in good hands. And if the, if the worst thing that happens in comics is that you have um, a pretty damn good comic from, from Jimmy and Amanda, then uh, the necessity for this conversation is, is completely null, and that's not the case. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that uh, should be uh, seen as quite offensive Um, when you talk about audience and what's appropriate you have to talk about characters you know like x-23 this is a character that's supposed to be 15 years old and yet i don't see a lot of people drawing her like she's 15 years old Uh, that's true of a lot of you know the teen titans um and we can talk about the need for for costumes you know our are costume superheroes at all reality-based? Were were it that uh, comic book superheroes lived and walked among us as real people, what would the necessity be for the types of costumes that we see except as a branding identifier? And um, I suppose if there were a world full of them, And yes, they would each have their own brand, and you would be seeing Superman-licensed costumes with some money going to the Superman Corporation um, as sort of hinted at in The Watchmen and uh, Adrian Veidt's Captain of Industry status. Um, And to a lesser extent, that of Booster Gold at DC Comics in the 1980s. But what uh, was a concept that was kicked around not too long ago... um, and I, I was part of a pitch with uh, the comic book artist Danny Shinya about launching a female-oriented series and character that addressed specifically a teenage female audience in inserting parts of real pop culture. So brand name genes, um, specific types of nail polish and makeup and hair dye, and having it be a kind of full-court press of product and demographic interest in a single book. And it was seen as a kind of subversive idea, and that was not the intention behind the pitch. The intention was that if you're going to reach teenage girls, you have to reach teenage girls with what they're interested in. You can't just throw a party and expect them to show up that it has to be a party planned for that specific group. That if you have elements that are important to them, and it was very much informed by the artist's own experience growing up, and as an immigrant, as a um, not an Asian American, but an Asian living in America, um, who became a citizen here after living here uh, from a from a certain age, that her experience is different than mine. If I were writing the comic, I would rely heavily upon stories of her life. That that would have to be part of the comic. And writing a comic with a female character as a male writer would have great challenges if I wasn't listening to my female co-creator constantly. That those things are going to make it into the story because they're going to be homogenous that they're going to exist because it's an important part of the storytelling dynamic. I don't see a lot of that in comics. I see a lot of the same type of male superhero stories being told slightly differently in order to um, pander rather than placate a, um, a specific other demographic, in this case, uh, female readership. And if you go back and you look at the, the comics that have been most successful with, with female readers, you don't find a lot of superhero comics because I'm not sure that that medium has ever spoken to them. It's more than just the comic looking, right? It's more than them finding the, um, the artwork attractive. It has to speak really holistically to their world experience. If it doesn't speak to their world experience, it rings false. And if it rings false and it's not entertaining, at least in some other grandiose way, then it's not going to last. And keeping up that level of shock and awe beyond, um, you know, five, six, seven, eight issues is going to be difficult. It's definitely not going to last beyond 30. I think um, where the biggest strengths have been in getting women involved in reading comics, and, and the numbers support this, have been in the supernatural, you know, um, adventure stories. Whether it be Neil Gaiman's Sandman or Bill Willingham's Fables, that um, they've been writing a story that appeals to a wide female readership because there's a lot of strong female characters. And perhaps because the male characters are of a specific type of vulnerability that is appealing to a female readership. I think that's a good place to break while we hear a word from our sponsors.
1: Hey guys, it's Breyers. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Melthology. Melthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works: Show up at the melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9:30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and three dollars for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck. And that is at Melt
0: Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And in our little mini-series within a series on diversity, we are addressing the role of women in comics as storytelling mechanic, as creative contributor, and as exploitation vehicle. I'm going to take everybody back. Back to the beginning of the female superhero. Now, there have obviously been strong female characters emerging from the comic strips, um, where they were, got very popular, and that popularity uh, encouraged people to start writing them into actual comic books, and not just the strips, not just the funnies. The most popular of those early characters was Wonder Woman. Now many of you may not know this, but the creator of Wonder Woman was also the creator of the lie detector test. The lie detector test that's used in police departments to this day across the country, um, many of times the results are which are uh, inadmissible in court, uh, inconclusive, is most often used as a bargaining chip by police departments in order to have a conversation with someone accused of a crime, more so than um, it being relied upon heavily as a um, yes-no scenario of whether or not someone's telling the truth that makes sense when you realize that the Wonder Woman character had a magic lasso that would make you tell the truth. Um, that same technology was actually licensed a few years later to uh, L. Ron Hubbard in his development of the e-meter. Uh, again, probably a theme for a different show. Um, very fascinating character there. But Wonder Woman was fascinating because she was presented as an Amazon. Um, not really a superhero in the traditional sense that superman was a superhero he was you know a baby that came from a planet whose gravitational pull and uh whose red sun um instilled him with powers in our world of a yellow sun and with uh less um or less of a gravitational pull and and therefore he's a superman among men Uh, And not like billionaire Bruce Wayne, who builds a lot of gadgets and trains himself to become a better fighter, but that she comes from a mythical race of warriors. And that very idea, and kind of a revolutionary idea in the 1940s when Sensational Comics is first published and when Wonder Woman becomes um, a very popular character, uh, the idea that this powerful woman is from a mythical, folkloric race. It was a revolutionary idea, but it was also very much an idea of its era, in that it had automatically built a wall around the idea of strong women. Now, this is not going back to the, you know, Mary Wollstone, uh, Frank, uh, the the Mary Shelley era of feminism. It's not the Susan B. Anthony era of feminism. It's it's much later. You're talking about the era of Adam's rib. You're talking about the area of Catherine Hepburn, of Barbara Stanwyck. And so movie actresses exuding a power which was a glamorous power. And that is from whence a character like Wonder Woman comes. But she's not this kind of proto-feminist character And indeed, in her identity, she becomes somewhat of a shrinking violet. She's not even as, say, strong-willed in her private identity as is Lois Lane, who is ever the damsel in distress for the uh, ubiquitous Superman. It's a very different dynamic, and I think that the birth of this character as a springboard for all female superheroes to follow creates a box... That it's been very difficult for female superheroes to get out of ever since. That it has been rare to see a very strong female superhero who is also a very strong female secret identity. And there's a role play aspect to it. There's a Madonna whore complex aspect to it. There's a very male-placating idea behind this formula. And that formula has persisted. It persists to this very day. The exceptions we've mentioned last week in talking about gay characters and, and great gay characters in comic books, the recent Batwoman, the recent question, um, that they are strong women in their, in their private lives. It took a long time. From the 1940s to the 2000 almost 10s for that formula to change this is identical to the struggle of feminism in the real world it is a parallel with the civil rights movement and yet both are still underrepresented in reality-based superhero comic books and i'm not here to wave my finger i don't have a solution for this i can't tell you how to how to write a better female superhero comic i can't say for sure that there is a way to do the superheroine um, as positively and differently to embrace the power the passion. And all of the great qualities of every great woman on this planet. I can't tell you how to do that. But there's got to be somebody who can. And I really wish they'd start writing comics. We're going to take another break.
1: Loot Crate. Comic-Con in a box. This is a monthly subscription service where, because of their iconic partners, each box is packed with exclusive items. There are different plans to suit your needs, and when you enter the promotional code MELTDOWN, you will get $3 off your crate. Check it out at LootCrate.com.
0: Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy. So we've been following up in our series of diversity in comics, um, following last week's podcast of um, gay superheroes with the role of women in comic books. We've been speaking primarily about the history of the female superhero, and we haven't talked about things like the Phantom Lady or even the Catwoman who's a very interesting character in that Catwoman is presented as a villain. Um, Catwoman is strong. And so to a 1940s audience, a uh, a strong woman running around in a cat costume, which is somewhat a metaphor for, uh, you know, sexuality in its way, masked sexuality, which is a, a whole other different level of uh, Freudian psychology, if not Jungian, that we're starting to understand why limitations exist on the audience for comics. That while we do seem to get more and more girls and women reading superhero comics, that there seems to be the same disconnect to a great degree as existed before still today. That's mainly in the team books. And I don't know if it's that the people writing the team books just don't have the capacity to balance um, a big group of, you know, deeply written, um, well-backgrounded, wonderfully concepted characters, or if it's, you know, the idea that now, you know, comics used to be longer, you know, I think the average page count in comics in the 1980s was 32 pages i think now it's 22 so you're missing 10 pages um, per comic that's a lot that's a lot of information that means that month to month people are getting less and less of a story that means more hook to keep people buying the comic book that necessitates a certain amount of splash pages that necessitates title pages so really how many panels do you have To tell an interesting story you can't fill them all with word balloons you can't get the story across that way in 22 pages i mean it's it's like the equivalent of nine ball versus eight ball there's a lot less balls on the table there's a lot less meat on the plate there's a lot less space to get your story across to catch the audience it's it would be like trying to reformat a one-hour drama as a 22-minute sitcom, and I think that's exactly what's happened. So how do you fix it? How do you get beyond that limitation? Well, if you're an independent, you can pretty much publish whatever page count you want, and you can have your cover price reflect that and um, speak to retailers and find out what what the golden cover price is that keeps you in line with your audience, that you don't lose them financially, because you've expanded your page count. And we have to assume, as dangerous as that is, that the big publishers, Marvel and DC, have conducted studies on this, and that that has led them to the 22-page story. That that's the fewest pages that they can get away with, that they can fatten it up with ads in between, um, and that they can put a specific cover price on it, and everybody's kosher with that. But maybe they haven't. Maybe there was no research. Maybe one month they just got less pages from somebody. And in order to placate the constant publishing schedule demanded by a DC or a Marvel, very popular pencils often fall behind. Uh, The days of Jack Kirby working on 8 or 9 titles a month, doing 32 pages each, while ghost outlining several other comics for other people to finish and plotting them. that Those days are gone. There's nobody like that. There's nobody like that. There will never be anybody else like that. I don't think there's anybody like that in Japan. So if you're enjoying the amazing pencils of Frank, quietly understand that it takes him a lot longer to do his pages than it took Sal Buscema in his era. And that leads to delays. How do you get around those constant delays which risk readership walking away? You publish less pages. You move the big event pages into a smaller amount of space. Your first big event comes sooner, your cliffhanger comes sooner. That affects the story mechanic. And you can tell when you read them back in an omnibus that the story has been presented that way. rather than there being a great commitment to telling a great story over more pages over a longer period of time with the risk that the audience walks away so what we're talking about is an inherent problem in the storytelling medium because as we know the difference in demographic between male readership you know give me the tv remote i'm going to go through a million different channels every 10 seconds and the woman sitting next to that man going crazy watching him going through those turning channels is the attention span. If you want to draw more of a female readership in, then you have to respect that they want a more detailed story. They're willing to put more time into it, invest more time into the relationship with those characters, and deliver that. Instead of you know, what is equivalent to the coitus interruptus of the fast delivery of a 22-page story. You can't just change the team, you got to change the game. We spoke last week about some of the great comic book writers. We talked about their ability to write great female characters. We spoke about that on this earlier podcast, earlier on this very podcast. And certainly Judd Winnick, great writer, working on some great titles. There's others. There's quite a few people that write great great support characters which is difficult. One could argue that many of those support characters under the tutelage of those writers would make great stars, great characters in their own books. But now there's a big plan. Every comic book that's getting published is in the eyes of its publisher a movie product or a television product. So getting too far outside the box of what that second use may be is counterproductive to the division that makes more money than the comic division. So here you've got this quandary. You've got comic sales that have been declining steadily over decades. You know, the days of the early 1990s and 7 million copies of Spawn Number 1 are so far gone, um, we're never getting back there. It's just not going to happen. Newspaper circulation is down. Specialty book publication is the only thing that's gone up Kickstarter is now the fifth largest publisher of books in North America. That means people are just producing their own product in limited quantities for the audience that they can raise. But they're doing it themselves. And by taking out the, the corporation, they get to tell those stories the way that they want to, and comics are a big part of that publishing. And there's great woman-driven projects that are being Kickstarted. Satine Phoenix has a comic out. It's pretty great. She's writing it. She's drawing it. Probably have her on this podcast coming up one or two shows away. We're going to talk to her about that. What's it like being a woman in the comic book industry? What's it like you know, being the, um, your own publisher? These are, these are new concepts to people that were fans just a couple years ago. That, that, uh, that gate-crashing thing that um, that seemed to be insurmountable in, in the 70s and 80s, that it was impossible to get into comics, and that it was somehow uh, a cachet of that, that it's a changing model. Now it's, okay, I'm going to do a comic because I want to get a TV series. I'm going to do a comic because I want to get a movie. So the danger is now, okay, you've produced this great comic book, you've written this great female character, and now you have to hand that female character over to a movie studio, and they're going to ruin it. Nine times out of ten, right? And on television. They're going to ruin it because they're going to have a lot of focus groups with people in Van Nuys. And they're going to answer a bunch of questions. um, Some who have gotten paid to go to the screening. And they're going to make decisions for the rest of the country about your product. So if there's a problem with diversity, again, maybe it's time we... You don't just change the team, you change the whole game. More people have to start investing in their own dream. They have to start producing the work that they would read. Identify a demographic. Identify a story. Identify a theme. Find something that isn't out there and make it. It's never been easier to do that. If you get online, you can find your tribe. You can find people who are into what you're into with a click. You get a few hundred, a few thousand. Hell, get a million. Like-minded people, you get a project off the ground. You've got a success story if you're all on the same page, if it's well-written, if the characters ring true, if it's done well. None of these things are impossible. You know, the sky's the limit on these things, and I think that it's time that we really start to take that power away from the publishers and the media companies that have it. You know, there were, there were a lot of laws against the types of uh, conglomerates that exist that tie our hands over issues like copyright, endless copyright. A corporation can copyright an author's work and not pay him for it. Well, thank God that got, you know, reversed pretty recently with the decision for a settlement out of court, actually, for the Jack Kirby estate and finally crediting him For the the many characters he's created, for the, the Marvel Universe. Maybe that's the beginning. But what we need as a fan base, as professional appreciators in our own way of these amazing creations by very gifted people, is we need to help them see their dream through. We have to support what we love. If you don't, it's going to go away. And once it's gone away, it might not be easy or even possible to get that back. If you've got that idea, if you've got that notion, if you are a a young woman or a person of color or a kid with an original idea that you don't think is out there yet, just get to it, do it. Put it up online. You know, do what you need to do to register it. Give yourself some kind of protection. It's not that difficult. But get it out there in the world. And you know what? You're going to find out that there's some people out there that like it. And yeah, you might get your share of uh, anonymous haters, cowards. People who are jealous that you're doing something that they don't have the gumption to do. That they got no grit. That they're not going to get off their cases and do something original. That they'd rather sit home and criticize. You know what? You never had them. Don't go after them. You're going to find enough people who do want it. And it's going to motivate you, and you'll motivate each other, and you'll tell stories together. And this is how you build the new reality. I certainly don't mean to get so esoteric, but the bottom line is that sometimes if the people you rely on Don't create for you what you need. You need to create on your own and not for them. So encourage people who you see in the big two to be able to kickstart their own projects. Encourage, support them when they produce their own creator-owned books. Get behind them. Share on social media the things that you enjoy. Get on Pinterest. Instagram it, Facebook it, Twitter it. I can't believe I just said Twitter it, not tweet it. But hey, you know what I'm saying? Get out there. Share it. Spread that thing that you love. You'll meet other people who love it too. You'll have that commonality. You'll have a community. You'll build a society. And that's what it's all about, right? That's what, that's why it's the Marvel Universe, It's why it's the DC universe. It is an infinite collection of societies created by people just like you who had stories about magnificent heroic characters that resonated within you, within your understanding, within your hopes and dreams, within your wished reality. Sometimes those stories are dark that's okay. It's not always sunny out there, not even here in Los Angeles. There's room for this. There's room for every type of story. So don't be afraid to tell yours. This has been Pod Sequentialism. My name is Matt Kennedy. I hope you'll tune in again next week. Feel free to send us a message about anything that I've said, whether you agree with it or hate what I've said, you let me know. We'll address this in a future podcast. We'll talk
1: to you soon.